dear friends and fellow travelers to eternity, it's an honor to get to be back with you tonight for no higher purpose than is ours to this evening, to be able to assemble together to worship our Heavenly Father and to sing these great songs of Zion so capably led tonight, to approach God's throne in prayer and open the Bible and read the Word of God, and now to have a few minutes to study that. Thank you so much for being here this evening. Tonight, as you saw in the text that was just read, I'd like to talk to you, focusing our attention on the man who digged deep. And that passage, of course, comes to us from Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49, as we just read. Notice, if you will, verse 46, where Jesus says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, there's a lot of reasoning that is presented to us in that one passage of Scripture. Why would we call him Lord? indicating his superiority and our humble submissiveness to him, and then not do what he says. Would that make any sense? No, that would be unreasonable. If we're going to call him Lord, we ought to do what he says. And now Jesus gives us a terrific example. We've heard about it all of our life. We talked about the VBS meeting tonight after services, and I remember from childhood we would sing about the man, the wise man who built his house on the rock, and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And as children, we used to, with great exuberance, let that house fall. Great was the fall of it. And we'd slap our hands together to so indicate. It is a great fall that comes when a person doesn't build on the rock, Jesus Christ. Tonight I want us to look at this man who does the digging. Jesus said, let me tell you about the person who hears what I say and who does what I say. Let me tell you to whom he is like. Jesus is the master teacher because he's able to paint these beautiful word pictures where we understand what he's talking about. We've all seen people digging. I don't know what your experience on that has been, but mine has been. You can't plan on doing any kind of digging without breaking a pretty serious sweat. And if you have girly hands like mine, you're going to wind up with some blisters on those hands. Once we visited a nursing home, and there was a little blind lady there, and I was shaking her hands, and she said, You got hands like a woman. I drew back like this, and everybody laughed. Like I was, everybody laughed, and she said, I always make them laugh. I said, yes, you do. <laughs> well, when, you, when you're a preacher and sit behind a desk and things, you, you know, your hands are like a woman's. So you always get a blister when you dig. It shows the effort that goes into that. Sometimes you need a pickaxe to get down through all of that, to get down where you want to go. You get a good load in that shovel trying to get through. It's heavy. It may, may weigh 20 or 30 pounds trying to get some of that out of there. Digging is hard work is the point. And Jesus said, let me tell you about somebody who listens to what I say and then does what I say. He's like a man that dig deep. That's a picture of some work that is involved in getting down to that rock upon which our faith rests and the hope of our salvation endures. Notice, if you will, tonight that the rock upon which our faith is residing, the point down to which this man is digging, is to establish his faith on that solid rock, Jesus the Christ. In our text here, you see on the board here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. I want to get verse 10 in that also because I think it's got some, some more application and beautiful meaning. Here in verse 10 in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul wrote, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereupon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For... Other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
So here in Jesus is talking about this man who digged deep. He's digging down to get on the rock of Jesus Christ. It's going to take some work or effort to get there. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, Paul writes, And that rock which followed them was Christ, hearkening all the way back to the crossing of the Red Sea. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 12, the Bible says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby ye must be saved. In Matthew chapter 7, in the parallel text to our reading tonight in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49, in verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And I want you to notice with me, before we leave this thought, Romans chapter 15 at verse 20. Here the Apostle Paul says, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. The foundation upon which we build is Jesus Christ. And Paul was setting out to lay that foundation of Christ in the hearts and minds of the people. So when we think about the man who digged deep, he's got to dig down and really get down to that rock. What is this digging about? Well, if you'll think about where Jesus is in Matthew 7 and in Luke chapter 6, the teaching of our Lord is standing in contrast to the teachings of those round about them. They're going to have to dig down through a lot of things they heard that are merely superficial and do not yield salvation that's in Christ. They're going to have to dig down through a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of misapplication and a lot of misinformation to get down to the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Jesus says the one who hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a man who digged, but he didn't just scratch the surface, he digged deep. And that's the man we want to take a look at and what he's digging through tonight. When we take a look at what it is to really get to the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ upon which our faith can reside, we find a number of things through which we have to dig. Let's just start with a few of them. We've got a few of them listed here. First, the doctrines of men. You know, a lot of people believe something so much, they think it's in the Bible. I'm confident that with all of the various names that are out there, I know when we started out preaching, we would use Frank S. Mead's Handbook of Religious Denominations in the United States. And we would amaze people by saying there are 350 religious denominations in the United States. Well, those days have long since passed. In Brother Rod Rutherford, one of his books on denominational doctrines, he says there are over 2,000. And there are new ones cropping up all the time. Rick Warren, author of Purpose Driven Church, now has his own denomination. I understand that there are thousands. The last time I saw like 40,000 churches in his new denomination. I don't know what all their affiliation is, but it just illustrates the point that you'll have the doctrines of men cropping up all of the time. Well, that's something through which we must dig. A lot of people think it's okay. The Bible has something to say about it. The verse is Colossians chapter 2 at verse 20. Those who are going to listen to what Christ says are going to have to do some work and are going to have to do some digging. Here in Colossians 2 and verse 20, the apostle Paul said, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? And then he lists a few of them. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which things are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. 
Why are you listening to the doctrines of men? As you know, Jesus said, Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15 in verse 9. In 2 John verse 9, the Apostle John writes on the point, and he says, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, hath not God. Now that's how serious it is. Most people of my acquaintance don't think it's that serious. They think as long as they believe in Christ in some form or fashion and they have some acquaintance with Him being the Savior, that that's all it takes. That's all that's necessary. Jesus said the man who listens to me is going to be like the man who digged, and he digged and went deep. That's the man that's going to be listening to me. <clears throat> so to just say we've heard of Christ, we've heard something about the salvation that's in Him, and that's all we need. That's not the man Jesus is describing here in Luke chapter 6, verse 46 to 49. He's a man who knows he's going to have to dig down through the doctrines of men. Isn't it interesting that in about 62 A.D. when Paul's writing Colossians, he's talking about why are you following the doctrines of men? Simple things like touch not, taste not, handle not. These are after the doctrines and teaching of men. I see that today with a lot of the practices. I know a few years ago it was a very popular thing and made its way into churches of Christ for people to be practicing 40 days of prayer. Now, they read that in Rick Warren's book on the purpose-driven church, and they thought it was a novel idea. It was Roman Catholicism put in a new dress, and people didn't recognize it. Even in the Church of Christ, they didn't recognize it. He put on the first page of his book, Growth Without Compromise. Oh, well, that says it then. We don't have to compromise if we use what's in his book. Are you going to fall for that? You're going to have to be like a man who digged down deep. You've got to dig through there and see what he's actually got. He and there he has the doctrines of men, like I said. I wonder how many people in churches of Christ who, like one congregation in Memphis, the eldership got up and held that book up and said, we're going to be going by this. This is our go-by. That church is not there anymore. I wonder how many congregations were like that in surprise when here what the end result of all that teaching on the purpose-driven church was was for Rick Warren to establish his own church, his own denomination over which he serves as head today. I wonder how many were surprised at that. What does it take for folks to see the simple truths found in the Bible here, Matthew 15, 9 and these other verses, that we don't follow the doctrines of men? We've got to dig down through that to get to the bedrock foundation of Jesus Christ. Another thing we dig down through is the, the idea of denominationalism. In Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, the Bible has something to say on this topic. Here Paul writes, Now I beseech you, brethren... Mark them, which cause divisions, hello, divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have received, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So you're going to have to dig down through that. They're going to make it sound real good. And if a person is, is too simple about it, if he's not willing to go to the effort to do some digging... He'll easily get caught up in that. Also, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, the apostle has something to say further on the topic. He states, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. For are ye not yet carnal? Whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not yet carnal and walk as men? 
What is division a symbol or a sign of in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 5? It is a sign of not spirituality, but carnality. For years we've illustrated the sign, the bumper sticker that says, Join the church of your choice. That's carnality. We don't have a choice when it comes to joining the church because we don't join any church. The Lord adds the saved to His church. Being a member of the church is not a matter of our joining. It is a matter of the Lord's adding. And He's only going to add when He's got people who are willing to dig down deep and get to His doctrine and His sayings and do what He says, and then He will add them to His church. We're going to wrap up the lesson in just a minute when we talk about why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And see some of the things Jesus said in order for a person to do to become a Christian. And then we'll find out who's willing to listen to Jesus and who's willing to listen to the teachings of men. In John chapter 17 and verse 21, Jesus said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, O-N-E, one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe thou hast sent me. That's what Jesus said. That they all may be one. Well, how would they indicate that oneness? They would indicate it in doctrine. We've seen that in the first point. They would all be speaking the same thing, being of the same mind and the same judgment, 1 Corinthians 1.10. They would be speaking as the oracles of God speak, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11 declare. Well, what if they have superfluous or extraneous things they're talking about? That's how you can tell whether or not these folks are one. They're all going to be the same name. They're all going to have the same worship practice. They're all going to have the same organization of the church if Jesus set it up, and he did. That church is going to have the same mission everywhere it exists on whatever continent of the world it abides. And it's going to have the same destiny. You're going to have all these folks being one. Here's something I think about. Jesus is praying in John 17, 21. He's asking the Father that all of his disciples would stand united, not divided as we have today, but stand united as one, that the world may believe that he has been sent by God into the world. Jesus prayed that prayer. We answer that prayer when we claim to be the one body of Christ. Now think about this. There are things for which we pray that are beyond our control. Most of the things we do are. Give us this day our daily bread. How does he do that? How, how is it that we are so blessed as we are? We stand in awe of the kindness of God. Sometimes we have a person who is sick. I mentioned my dad. He's been going through a lot of pain. We've been in prayer. There's, you know, He had morphine one night. Forget about it. He just doesn't take any pain medication because it doesn't get in there deep on that pain in that hip where he had the surgery. We go to God in prayer to ask Him to do things no man can do. And we pray in faith, expecting God to hear us. Well, what about when Christ prayed for something that we can do? We can, do, we can stand as one. He gave us the platform upon which to stand. We can all be one based upon this teaching. Same doctrine, same practice. If we're not going to stand together as one, as Jesus prayed for, is it really fair to expect him to answer our prayers? Oh, I'm, no, I'm not going to think about one body and one church. That's not popular. We've got hundreds, now today thousands, 
That's what's popular, and we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings about that or give them any intimation that they might be in error with this division and denominationalism. So we're just going to let it ride. We're not going to challenge it. We're not going to say anything about it. And yet we want Jesus to answer our prayers. We want God to answer our prayers through Christ, our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5. I think we need to think about that. I think people everywhere need to think about that. If I can do something the Lord prayed for, I ought to do that, especially if I'm going to turn around and ask Him to do something for me that I cannot do for myself or for my loved ones. So Jesus prayed that all of His followers would be one. I think we need to take it seriously. And I don't see people in the religious world talking about that. I see the Church of Christ pleading for that. But I don't see people in the religious world praying for unity. You know what their brand of unity is? If you want to be united, just come over and join our church. You can join all the churches in the world and still not be right with God because you don't join His. He adds you to it when you obey, as we discussed. Then there are the creed books. Creed uses guidebooks. And it's certainly the case that we have those. I mentioned one that's the way a popular creed is put. And you might have read this purpose-driven series that, that Rick Warren has. Well, it's a popular creed book. It's codified. It's a creed book. There are others that are just standard creed books. I get this advertisement. I don't have this set of books, but there's an advertisement for Creeds of Christendom, a three-volume set. You see that all the time in the Christian book distributor. And it's tw- it lists 2,300 creeds that are contained in that three-volume set. About that, Jesus had something to say in Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, and eat with unwashed hands? He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, ye hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups, and many other such things ye do. And he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. That's what we mean when we talk about these creeds. Let me ask you a person who has signed on to a denominational order that has a creed. Which is going to be first in priority? The Bible or the creed? It's going to be the creed and you stay with them. They've all agreed that's what they believe and they've codified that and put it in the creed book. Some people are members of denominations don't even know they have a creed. Oh yes they do. There's one that's posted on the web, sbc.net. You can go there and read all about their creed on there. Sixteen million people follow that creed, that system of belief that's on there. That's the largest denomination in the United States. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul comments about this when he says that whatsoever you do, do all in the name of or by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, that's an important principle right there. Colossians 3 at verse 17. Whatsoever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Sometimes we try to put it this way. The Bible is our creed. The word creed means I believe. This is what we believe, the Bible. We don't believe anything more than this or anything less than this, but the Bible and the Bible only. Now then, there are those who want to say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and that it is complete. And I'm glad that they say that, but yet then they don't practice that. Let me give you an example. I spent some time in the hospital. There's a paper in there from the Arkansas Baptist Association. And I was reading where the president of that association bemoans the fact that 9 out of 10 Baptists do not share their faith with other people. If you'd like to read the article, I don't know if I brought it today, but I can show it to you if you'd like to check it out. In there, what he argues is that what he's encouraging his brethren to do is to share what he calls a blood-bought, victorious, supernatural, personal testimony. Now, he's trying to base that on 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 16, where Paul serves as an example for those who would follow after. But he doesn't get what he's saying from Paul. He's saying Paul's words were his personal testimony when he told about how he met Jesus on the road. Paul didn't see it that way. It was personal, that's true. It was a testimony because he could testify as an eyewitness. But you'll notice what the way Paul considers it in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. He considers, considers it a matter of divine revelation. I didn't receive this revelation from men, but from Christ. And it is upon that basis that he leaves Judaism, obeys the gospel, serves as an apostle, and lives such a valiant life advancing the cause of Jesus Christ. It was a matter of revelation. Also in the third point that I was telling you about the president and, and pastor making, he says that it is a miraculous testimony. What's he talking about? He's talking about when a person, he's trying to encourage one person of his denomination to talk to another person and tell him, here's what you need today. Now let me tell you what God has done for me. And that is supposed to be a supernatural, miraculous testimony. The supernatural and miraculous have been placed into the Bible and properly confirmed, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So that when we talk about miracles today, we're talking about miracles, the purpose of which was to confirm the Word of God so that we didn't chase around everybody's thought and idea. But I just wanted you to see that sometimes you have folks who use things other than the Bible as their authority, and yet they will say, the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and the Bible is complete. But you cannot be what they are without a personal testimony. A supernatural, miraculous, personal testimony. I was glad that he came out with that in that article because I hadn't seen language that strong in recent years coming from that denomination. But now we've got it written in an article by a guy who's president of the Arkansas Baptist Convention. He's speaking for them. He's trying to encourage them to share their faith with others and to testify. He says there is no theological school or no amount of theological study that you need to prepare you. You have this testimony. Well, that's false doctrine. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. So you have people who believe the Bible, but yet they have added their personal testimony to it. 
And that's how you get to the point of having something to stand as an authority among people that is not based on the Word of God. Colossians 3.17, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is, by His authority. And His authority alone has given us the Word of God. It's interesting to me that the verse just preceding that one says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So you've got to dig down through that. If you stop there, if you stop with any of these levels, doctrines of men or denominationalism or creeds as guidebooks, you have a superficial religion. You're building your house on the sand, brethren and friends. We've got to do some digging. Jesus says, let me tell you the person who listens to me what he's going to be like. He's going to be like the man who gets out the shovel and digs down. It's going to take some work to do it. It is not capricious. It is not superficial. Well, in the next place, human names in religion. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 11, I alluded to a minute ago. The apostle said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Speak how? As the oracles or the utterances of God. Also in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, you'll learn that Paul describes an individual who is ill. Religiously, he is sick if he's not following these words. Let's hear it from him. 1 Timothy 6, 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, which words are those? Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting. That word means sick. If he's not consenting to these words, he is sick about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. Well, what do you do with that? From such withdrawal thyself. I'm not asking you to do anything tonight that the Word of Christ has not asked you to do. What does he say do about those who are using words not found in the Bible and names in religion not found in the Bible? Withdraw yourselves from them. Now that's easy. It's easy to see what's there. Oh, it's hard to do. This man's got some digging to do. There's going to be some sweating over it. If you don't think there'll be any sweating over it, you just find yourself in one of these religions wearing these names and say, I'm no longer going to be called by anything I can't find in the Bible. You, can, you may refer to me as a Christian or as a disciple. Acts 11:26. You may refer to me as a brother. You may even refer to me as a saint. But you're not going to refer to me by anything I can't put my finger on in the Bible because I'm not going to be sick anymore. I'm not going to be carrying out the names that are invented by men, sometimes in reverence to a man of high standing and stature among a religion, sometimes in reference to a religious practice, wearing names that are not found in the Bible. What's the solution to that? Withdraw thyself from it. Just go ahead and get out of it. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm no longer that. I'm not going to be anything I can't read about in the Bible. That's why I have never encouraged anyone to be anything other than a Christian. Because the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts 11.26 And Peter said, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this behalf. That's what we plead for men and women to be. Simply and only Christians. What about all the other stuff? 
You need to withdraw from that because it is not in harmony with the oracles of God. In the next place, additions and subtractions. We saw that in 2 John 9, Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ. To transgress means to go beyond. That is a transgression. He abides not in the doctrine of Christ. He does not have God. Now we have the assurance, and it is our conviction and confidence, that if we abide in the doctrine of Christ, we have both the Father and the Son. You see the risk that a person is running? to have the various creeds and the various names and religions and the denominations and doctrines of men, he's running the risk of not having God at all. Because Jesus is expecting us to be like this man, to get out that shovel and dig down deep through that. You can't just let it stand and build your house on the rock. It's in the way of Christ. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We saw that in Acts 4 and verse 12. That name is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation down to which we're digging. And these things, additions and subtractions, stand in the way. You know what happens in Leviticus 10 with the death of Nadab and Abihu? And some don't like these Old Testament examples. That's one reason we need to give them is because you need to love the Bible. And the things that were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Romans chapter 15 and verse 4. They were written that Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest ye fall. What problem did Nadab and Abihu become involved in that cost them their lives? They offered fire which the Lord commanded them not. What does that mean? It means that from the biblical perspective, in order to please God, we must have authority for what we do. If we do something for which there is no command, we run the risk of the fate of Nadab and Abihu. They displeased God when they offered fire that the Lord commanded them not. Now, I mention that because sometimes today people say, well, as long as it doesn't say you can't do it, we can go ahead and do it. I know some of those same people are doing some things that the Lord said they can't do. Once they get used to adding to it, they go ahead and really get busy with it. When we go beyond those commandments adding to them, we do not have the favor and blessing of God in that regard. So additions and subtractions and substitutions. I mentioned substitutions because there are so many substitutions. You know there are a lot of people today, you know what they do? They'll turn on Arthur or Arnold Murray on television and they'll sit in their living room and watch that guy go through and do what he calls expounding the Scripture. The only thing that he does good is read the Scripture on there, but his explanation of it is really skewed. And most people who've watched him for very long know something about his doctrine and know that it is not biblical. He departs from Bible teaching. Even on this point that we're talking about here tonight. Oh no, he would stand for religious division of any sort, any order, any name. It's all fine. He has said that on more than one occasion. But a lot of people are making a substitution. Instead of the assembly of the saints commanded in Hebrews 10 and 25, some people are just staying home and they're writing a check for their contribution and sending it to Arnold Murray over in Gravette, Arkansas. And that's the way folks do. Joyce Meyer's got followers like that too. Speaking all over the country, folks go down to hear Joyce. And they only make about $53 million a year. And they'll send in their money. You know what they're doing? They're making substitutions. Where do you worship? Oh, I listen to Joyce Meyer. Oh, I listen to Arnold Murray. And there's any other number of them like that. And they are in fellowship with them. When they write that check, they're in fellowship with them. And oh, you're one of our partners now. 
And they don't have any involvement in a local congregation at all. There are a lot of substitutions that are taking place. Sometimes people want to substitute morality for Christianity. And morality alone is not a substitution. Cornelius tells us about that in the 10th chapter of Acts. <clears throat> Last thing I want to mention to you is, the, is, morality is, a, is morality that is short of Christianity. You see, Cornelius, he was a devout man. He prayed to God. He feared God. One of the things that's interesting to us about Cornelius is that in a pagan world, he worshipped the one true God. He wasn't a Jew, and yet he was worshipping the one true God. That's quite striking, especially being a centurion of high rank. And during that period of history, they revered their emperors, and yet he did not revere them as others did. He worshipped the one true God. He was a moral man. But he needed words whereby he and all his house would be saved. Peter, as you know, came and gave him those words. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 10, verse 47. So morality alone just doesn't get it. You know, we're not wise when we compare ourselves among ourselves. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. And one of the reasons is because you can always find somebody that's a worse character than you are, no matter what you're doing. You know, they say there's no honor among thieves. Well, even among thieves, some don't want to associate with one another. You know, having spent some time in a jail, not as a, uh, not as a resident, but as a visitor, <laughs> like I was telling you this morning, going in, running those cables, you run across a lot of people. You know, one of the saddest and yet funniest things I saw was up here in Henry County. They had 57 women in jail up there, and we visited them, my wife and I and a whole group from the um, Eastwood Church of Christ up there went to visit Fifty-seven women. You know what they do to punish those women? One thing they do, they make them all wear exactly the same get-up. Big green stripe, big white stripe. You want to torture a woman, just look around the room and everybody wearing the same thing. I think it is cruel and unusual punishment. But they're, they're all in there. Well, you get to know something about those folks when you get in there. I know one night I was up on the roof working and I was trying to get the work done late and they shut the doors and I'm locked out and I can't get down this hallway and locked in there like a prisoner in the hallway. And I'm looking out this little window thinking, I'm going to spend a night in this place. And a prisoner walked by. And I said, hey, hey, would you uh, call downstairs and tell them I want out? Yeah, he pushed the button and called down. I told him, I said, you're a better man than I am. I'd at least had some fun with you locked in, in that stairwell. I wouldn't let you out so easy. You're a nice man. There are people in there who do certain crimes the others do not want to associate with. At the Pendle Farm in Memphis, they're cordoned off in separate buildings. And I'll tell you what, you can go out to the zoo in Memphis, and you can see some animals beating on the cage, or you can go over to Pendle Farm. They'll, do this. They'll act the same way over there. You just don't have to throw them any peanuts to get them to act up. They're just built that way. There are some prisoners, some convicts, that do not want any association with other convicts. So if we're comparing ourselves among ourselves, you can always find a guy that's worse off than you. I'm a great guy. I'm better than most people. Well, what good does that do you? You're still lost. Some people trust in their morality. I never would say a curse word. I wouldn't take a drink or smoke a cigarette if, your life, if my life depended on it. I would never think of lying or cheating or stealing. I think I'm fine. And when I get before the Lord in the judgment, I'm going to tell him how good I was. Morality, short of Christianity, is something you need to dig down through. I congratulate you on being moral. I went to high school with a young man, and you know what he told me one day? He said something. You know how you say, oh, you're lying. He said, no, I never lie. I thought, well, I like that about him. He's not going to lie. And he'll tell you that. I'm telling you the truth. You could always count on what he said, even if it got him in trouble. He's going to be truthful. 
Well, I commend people for having those morals, and you need those. It's part of Christianity, but it's no substitution. Morality short of Christianity, friends, will not save you. We've got to do some digging. We've got to dig down through the doctrines of men, denominationalism, creeds as guidebooks, human names and religion, additions, subtractions, and substitutions, and morality short of Christianity. Isn't that some work? Oh, I guarantee you that's some work to dig down through that. I baptized a lady who'd been a member of the Baptist Church for 43 years. She started attending the services of the church. She's dating a guy there, and they had both lost their spouses. They were dating. He was bringing her to the services of the church. When we would go out, you know how we do, we talk. She would tell me, I'm hearing some things I've never heard. I said, are they from the Bible? She said, yeah, they're from the Bible. I've never heard them before. I said, you just keep listening. And she listened, came, I don't know, six months or maybe even longer until finally she said, I need to obey the gospel. She understood more about what the Bible said in six months just attending the services of the church, hearing gospel preaching that she learned in the last 43 years. But I'm telling you this to say this. Sometimes she would come to me and she would say, you know, sometimes I slip back into my old way of thinking. And I knew what she meant by that. Once saved, always saved. You know, if you're saved, you don't have to attend the services of the church. It'd be nice if you did, but you don't really have to. And all. Sometimes I slip back into my old way of thinking. She'd have to get out that shovel periodically to make sure she's staying firmly planted on Jesus Christ. This is not an easy thing that we're talking about here. It requires diligent effort. That's why Jesus said, I'll tell you the person who listens to me and does what I say, what he's like. He's like a man that digged and went down deep and founded his house on a rock. That rock is Jesus the Christ. Now notice as we bring our lesson to a conclusion... That Jesus said, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Well, here's a simple exercise. In some things that Jesus said that I want you to notice and see, there are those here tonight who are not Christians. Maybe you're not a member of the Church of Christ. Maybe you've been in some of these denominations I've been talking about. Maybe you've been sitting home watching Arnold Murray. I don't know what you've been doing. But now you're hearing tonight, the Lord expects me to dig down deep and to dig into his word and to get it so that I can know that I'm truly a follower of Christ. I realize it's going to take more effort than I've been putting out. Well, I want to notice some things that Jesus said with you. I entitled this slide, The Gospel Plan of Salvation. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1 and verse 16. The gospel of Christ, therefore, has power to save. It is a plan, the plan of God for our salvation. It is not designed by men. It is not drafted by men. It's not derived from men. It is the gospel plan of salvation from Christ. There is only one gospel, no other. Galatians 1, verse 6 through 9. Notice five things about what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, on one occasion, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus expects us to hear him. I call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say, to whom are we listening? Sometimes people say, oh, I love Max Lucado's books. I've read all of his books. Who are you listening to? Max Lucado or Jesus Christ? Well, some of his books are good. I think they're just fine and everything. 
Well, you know he received a award from a denomination on being a grand writer. I thought it was funny. One of the fellows in the denomination for which he received the, the award wrote and said, Look, make up your mind. Are you a member of the Church of Christ? I'm a Baptist. Are you a member of a Baptist church? Which is it? You, you are, you're a traitor to the cause. You're teaching Baptist doctrine and you're a member of the Church of Christ. Do you know that about Max Licato? He's like the guy in the Civil War. thought he had the solution to the problem and he'd wear a navy blue coat and gray pants. Oh, that's the solution, man. I can be on both sides of this issue. They found him dead, shot through the pants and the coat. Well, that's the way he is among folks. Who am I listening to? Am I listening to Jesus Christ? Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Also, in Matthew chapter 21, in verse 25, in setting forward a dilemma before those who understood about the teaching of John the Baptist as he prepared the way for Christ, Jesus set out a dilemma. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned correctly. They said, if we say it is from heaven, they're going to say, why didn't you believe him? They didn't want to say. And Jesus didn't answer them either. I want to note with you that segment in that statement where if they say that the baptism of John in preparing the way up for Christ was from heaven, what do you think the appropriate response should be? Why don't you believe him? We hear in the sayings of Christ. Next. When Jesus begins preaching in Matthew 4 and verse 17, here's what he says. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sometimes today the subject of repentance is negative because you're asking people to change. You're automatically stating, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with you religiously. I don't agree with you morally. And you need to change. Have you ever had somebody say, who are you to tell me? Well, who we are would be those who are teachers and preachers of the Word of God. And we are preaching the Word, and we're giving you the utterances of heaven when we say, you need to repent. I've repented. I have submitted to that. You need to repent. Some people don't like to talk about repentance because it's considered a negative subject. When you tell somebody you're going to have to change, just like I did tonight about saying, if you're wearing these names and following these creeds, you need to withdraw yourselves from them, 1 Timothy 6, 5. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's our responsibility to show others what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, began his ministry, first thing we know out of his mouth he's stating preaching is, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to change. And then all, of he said, and all that he says during his personal ministry backs up that statement. When he urges people to change, he shows them how. He gives them incentive and reasons to do that by the life that he lives and the sacrifice that he made. So follow me now in the gospel plan of salvation. We must hear the word of God and believe it and repent of sins. Then Jesus says in Matthew 10 and verse 32, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. So we are actually to make a confession of our belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God before men. And that's in order for us to be saved. You can't just know somebody says, Well, I, God knows what's in my heart. You better get what's in your heart out on your lips if you want to be saved, Romans 10, 9 and 10, Matthew 10, 32, or you're going to be lost with something good in your heart. It needs to make its way to your lips and be lived out in your life to have effect and the effect that the Lord is looking for. So we confess Christ. That's what the Lord said. Remember, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Do you call him Lord and you've not heard his word, believed in him, repented of sins, and confessed his name? You need to. And then the Lord said for us to be baptized. 
In the Great Commission, as contrasted to the limited commission in Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So there you have it tonight. That's, that's the best I can do tonight on a lesson, is to hear Jesus say, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say, to see that we need to dig down deep through some of the things that keep us from obedience and standing firmly on the rock, which is Christ, and then to see a few things that Jesus said that put us in a right relationship with him. When we do this, the Lord adds us to his church. He'll think enough of you. doesn't matter what your background has been. Paul was chief of sinners, 1 Timothy 1.12. If God saved the chief, he can save you if you will hear what he says and do what he said to do. I know it's not easy if you're going to be leaving a religion of, of your family and friends. It's not easy. It's like digging on down through that. But that's what the Lord said. The one who hears him and does what he says is like. Are you ready to do some digging tonight and to get down to Christ and to strip away all of the things that stand between you and salvation that's in him? So you see what the Lord said and what you need to do. The church to which you will add you to is found in your Bible Romans 16, 16. The churches of Christ salute you. Right there. I wouldn't be a member of the church of Christ. It wasn't in the Bible. There it is. Jesus said upon this rock, I'll build my church. Matthew 16 and 18. That's the church to which the Lord adds you. is His church. No human activity is going to get you into the church of Christ. Your obedience prepares the way. The Lord will add you to the church. As you see in this last sentence here, the Lord added to the church daily. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. Will you let the Lord add you tonight while together we stand and sing His praise?